Hey guys, welcome to episode 165 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope you're all well and are in the mood for some true crime. And if you're interested in ad-free episodes and two full-length bonus episodes each month, please join us at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. Or you can download the Patreon app. I'll put a link in the show notes like I always do. And, you know, that's that's it for the announcements. Pretty short and sweet. So, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Of course. For this case, we're going to travel to Jacksonville, Florida in 1998. Jacksonville back in 1998 was slightly less populated than it is now. Currently, Jacksonville has a population of just under 1 million residents. And in 1998, it was around 700,000. And you all know the statistics by now. With larger populations come more crimes, including violent crimes. But Jacksonville was a unique city, as it's also a resort-style city. So tourists and out-of-towners are always in and out, something that also raises crime rates. And because of that, Jacksonville, in 1998, had rape, and assault rates that doubled the national average, and a murder rate that almost tripled it. That's crazy. That's really high. It is. There's a lot to do in Jacksonville. Go to the zoo, visit downtown, go to the beach, enjoy recreation centers and beautiful parks with the Atlantic Ocean as your backdrop. It's gorgeous. But anyone who lived there in the late 90s knew that it was a different city at night. In places that families just dined and locations where children were just playing, the energy and nightlife of the coastal town became electrifying. It was a place to party. After dark was when the dangers around Jacksonville were more present than they had been when the rays of the Florida sun illuminated every nook and cranny of the popular tourist destinations. But at night, it was said that the people of Jacksonville took back their city. And they did so with a feverish desire. And when the sun would rise again from what looked like the depths of the Atlantic and cast shimmering lights on the beautiful blue waters, they knew it was time to give their city back to the tourists. Because of this atmosphere, the Jacksonville Police Department had their work cut out for them. Drunken disorderlies or disputes from tourists during the day and bar brawls, drug trafficking, rape and murder cases when the sun went down. Today, we're going to cover one of those brutal crimes, when a young woman was slaughtered in the safety of her bedroom, and the tourist town of Jacksonville was turned completely upside down. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So that brings us to November 27th, 1998, the day after Thanksgiving that year. Corey Parker, a young, beautiful college student, was supposed to begin her shift at the Ragtime Tavern in Atlantic Beach at 11.30 a.m. However, she was a no-show. This was something that was unusual for Corey. She was always on time, and if not, she was early. The 25-year-old's apartment was not too far from the restaurant, so one of Corey's friends, who was also a cook, 
volunteered to go check on her and see if everything was all right. When he got to her apartment, located on 4th Street and 15th Avenue, he knocked on the door. He waited for a while, but when there was still no response, he headed back to the restaurant to report that no one had been home. Everyone thought that maybe Corey had gone somewhere before work and got caught up or was just running late. But as more time passed and Corey wasn't there, her co-workers grew more and more concerned. The co-workers at the bar, they were kind of described as like a really tight-knit, more family-like group because a lot of them were from out of town. So it was almost like they all looked out for each other. Yeah, I mean, that's great. Especially like you got to think about the atmosphere at a bar. We've all been there. Mm-hmm. Everybody's rowdy. Everyone's drunk. Everyone's having a good time. But crazy things happen. So it's nice to have the feeling like it's your second family at your job. Right. So that's nice. You have support. Yeah. So they all agreed that the man that had went over to Corey's at first, the cook, her friend, he should go one more time just to double check and see if she was all right before they started making, you know, phone calls to Corey's family or maybe even the police department. So he goes over this time with more of like a mission to know what's happening. And he went to go knock on the door, but there was still no answer. So he decided to take a walk around her whole unit and she did live on the ground floor. Upon doing so, he noticed that he could get a view into her apartment through the blinds. So he decided to peer inside. When he did, he saw the bloodied foot of a woman. In shock, the man rushed back to the restaurant, and when he got there, out of breath and white as a ghost, he demanded that they call 911 immediately. As the operator picked up, he revealed that he thought that Corey was dead or really badly hurt and that the door was locked so he couldn't get in. Okay, how far did she live from the job? Um, it was it was definitely a car ride. You couldn't have walked. Okay. All so right. I would say like five, maybe five, ten minutes from looking at Google Maps. But remember, this is 1998, so it's the time before cell phones. And he was probably just super in shock. No, of course. Because now I'm thinking based on them sending him out to go look uh, to see what, if she was okay, that whatever might have happened to her had to have happened after her shift the following uh the night before well the day before was thanksgiving so she wasn't working she wasn't working yeah okay Hmm. so i think it was just because i thought the same thing when i first heard the story i was like oh my god why wouldn't you just go to the neighbor's house or something like that but the man had to have been in complete shock in seeing that i don't think anyone is ever prepared for that so it's like it's so easy for someone to say uh you know Hey, run across the street. You know, what are you doing? Like, right, or react this way. Right, you're, you're in shock. You literally are seeing something that is not typical at all. Right. The Jacksonville Police Department quickly responded to the call. When the officers arrived at the apartment building, which to kind of explain to you what it looks like, it's a completely square building. And it seems as if there's, you know, I don't know how many apartments are specifically on each floor, but there's two levels of apartments because there's a staircase like kind of built into the building that will take you to the apartments on the upstairs level, and then there's apartments on the downstairs level. So there could be anywhere from what it looks like, from like three to four apartments on the ground and second floor level. 
Yeah, usually I I actually got a really good picture of how you described it. Six or eight. It could, yeah, it could be because, like I said, it's just like a a tear up and down. Yes, like perfect square. Yep. And it's it's painted an aqua color because we are in a beach town. So just to give you the visual, I don't like the aqua. No. (laughs) So John's a very neutral man. I am. I am. (laughs) Metropolitan gray is my color. That is that is his go to shade. Is that weird that I remembered the paint color in our living room? You 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 love it. Yeah, I do. I'm an October mist girl myself. Oh my god, stop! Um, (laughs) When we're Benjamin Moore like nerds, (laughs) we are. So when the officers got to the building, they are going to knock on the first door that they can find. A young woman answers the door and they ask her if she's Corey Parker. The woman, who was friends with Corey, was shocked and surprised that the police were looking for her friend. She told them that she wasn't and then she pointed to the apartment next to her own, the one that was Corey's. Once they were able to get into the apartment, the officer dispatched was able to confirm that there was a young woman who had been murdered in the apartment. He stated that the woman appeared to look like Corey Parker was described, so it might be her, and that it was very obvious that she was murdered. And it was also very obvious that at least a day had gone by since this murder took place. Detectives and a crime scene unit were immediately dispatched to the scene after the officer said this over the radio. And the neighbor, Corey's friend, was like kind of listening to this whole thing. So she just remembered being absolutely devastated by, you know, that was how she heard that her friend had been murdered and had been murdered in the apartment right next to her, which was also terrifying. And that's something that she talked about because there was a Dateline episode on this case so that's where she gave that interview oh, okay yeah i mean i couldn't imagine that taking place and then you know obviously you're distraught over your friend being murdered but yes. also um you know not to make it about the other per you know yourself but then you're also in your apartment going oh my god behind behind that wall that other wall that adjoins us let's say someone died there like yeah. now i'm a little uneasy that someone just committed murder in a place where I practically live. I mean, there's just a wall separating you two. Right. And could you know? it have been me? Right. I mean, that's kind of an uneasy feeling that I don't think you can shake so easily. Very unnerving. Yeah. Based on the findings of the detectives and the investigator, there was no evidence of a forced entry into the apartment at first. All of the doors and windows were locked except the kitchen window. One detective thinking that it wasn't a coincidence that this is the only entry point that was left unlocked, slid the window open. And once the window was open, they were able to see that like on the inside of the windowsill, there was blood. So they're not sure if this was the entry point for their attacker, but they certainly knew that it was the exit point. I see. So, Right. Like, at, like I'm sure they're going to have to test that blood to see if it matches the victim or someone else. Right. But if the crime scene was bloody enough. Oh, the crime scene was It's possible that bloody. that person had her blood on him or her as they escaped. And that's what left all that blood around the window. Right. Now they just need to find out if that was also the entry point or had she let this person into her apartment. Within the apartment itself, there were no disturbances which indicated that there had not been a massive struggle. 
What was observable, however, was the fact that the 25-year-old woman in front of them had been brutally slaughtered at the hands of her sadistic killer. What must have been truly disturbing to investigators, among many other things in this case, was the appearance of the crime scene. Everything was pristine. There was no indication of a struggle or violence anywhere in the apartment, except one specific location. It was like Corey herself and the bed that she was found on had been dragged from the depths of the most gruesome horror movie and placed in the middle of a perfectly normal woman's bedroom. It was like everything was great, but it was just her bed and the wall right behind it was covered in blood. And that indicated to them that she had been asleep when this attack began. So they don't know, did she go to bed with someone and this person killed her? Or had someone snuck in the window? I guess that's a really big piece of evidence that we would need to figure out. Like, what was the entry point and what took place? Like, how did that take place for that to be the scene, you know? Right. Hmm. I, I, you know, I, I think the, also the the time um, as far as like, like they're saying what, Thanksgiving, right? Well, she was found the day after Thanksgiving and the medical examiner is going to give a pretty good estimate as to when this murder took place. And they're going to determine that they believe that Corey had been murdered the night prior to Thanksgiving. Because remember, the officer said, it looks like she's been here for more than a day. I gotcha. Okay. Just because I'm thinking like, you know, one of the biggest things, uh, an issue in any kind of apartment complex or, you know, apartment living is you can hear a lot of sounds. You can, you know, if someone's fighting, you can hear it. If someone's listening to loud music, you can hear it. So I, I do oh, find we it. Know, a, yeah, we, we know all too well. So. I just think that that is always something that gets me is the whole sound barrier thing. It's like if something this brutal and so bad is taking place, I find that just so hard to believe that no one was alerted to anything or that we don't know of yet, but how nothing was heard at all. I mean, because if this is as bad as you're claiming, I mean, that's kind of weird. Well, I think that it was a brutal attack, but like the investigators say, it's kind of indicated by the discovery of her body that she was most likely asleep when the attack began and there are going to be deep lacerations and cuts gaping wounds in her neck so what they're thinking happened was she was made incapable of making noise and yelling for help almost immediately yeah but i mean i find it hard to believe that it would be something that's opportunistic because what are the odds that that person's going to climb in through any window or door or whatever, mm-hmm. and then that person's going to be sleeping? Like, that person had to have known her schedule enough to be like, all right, she's sleeping around this time. Because you're not going to take that gamble going yeah. through a window or a door or whatever and then do that. Correct. Also, don't forget this is a party town, and Thanksgiving Eve is a very big, if you don't know, if you're not, like, from the United States or have never been a part of this scene, like, that's a really big bar night. Yes. Everyone goes out the night before Thanksgiving, so they probably knew a lot of people wouldn't be home. Well, from the words of the prosecutor that had gone to the crime scene, Corey had been at her most vulnerable, alone in bed, presumably, we don't know yet, and in the safety of her own home when she was brutally and ruthlessly killed. When she was found, her bed was completely covered in blood, 
so much blood that it soaked through her bed and so much that it did not all get absorbed into her sheets and mattress. Rather, it pooled around her. She was kind of like in a puddle of her own blood. That's so sad. In her bed. Um, She had attempted to fight, but it was in vain. Her stab wounds had been fatal. But still, she fought against the person that was going to claim her life. But for her attacker, killing her was not enough. According to an autopsy report, Corey's killer stabbed her long after her death. There were over 100 stab wounds in her body. Wow. So they were all done post-mortem? Not all of them, but the majority. And there's more. More details will come out. It's very... This is a sickening crime. Okay. News of Corey's death spread quickly throughout the community of Jacksonville, where she was very much loved. Her family back in Rochester, New York, was notified immediately of her death. Corey had always been a shining light in their life. She was their daughter, their sister, their aunt. She was a lot of things to a lot of people, and they were devastated to learn about the senseless murder. Prior to this event, Corey had been so happy. She'd been doing well. She had just made the dean's list in college the semester previously. And when she was not in school, she was working as a waitress making good money. The tips were always great for Corey, because patrons and fellow staff too, for that matter, were just in love with her bubbly personality. But now this. They, just like the others in her life, could not make sense of it at all. Who would do something like this to Corey? Well, back at the crime scene, the detectives were trying to make sense of it all, too. But in the words of the lead detective on the case, they were not trying to figure out who did it just yet. The crime scene is an animal in and of itself. He said that when looking at the crime scene, you can't jump to who did it. You first have to answer the question, what happened here? And that, more often than not, will eventually lead you to who did it. According to the detective, the scene had telltale characteristics of a sex crime. The entire crime scene was on her bed, and the killer left her body on display. Her legs had been left spread open, and her underwear had been taken off and rolled up and left near her knee on the bed. Corey had over 100 stab wounds, It was truly something those working the case would never forget. But the wounds that stuck out to them most were the two that had the most blood coming out from them. And they were two very large gaping stab wounds to either side of her throat. Could this have been a sexually motivated crime? The detectives would have to speak with friends and family to learn what had been going on in Corey's life. And they would also need to await the autopsy results to get a better understanding of just what had happened to their victim. Luckily, while the detectives were analyzing and processing the scene, the officers were already beginning to collect that information. While the officers were canvassing the area to see if anyone had seen or heard anything, because they were kind of going with the thought process you are of, how did nobody hear this? Yeah, I I always, that's so puzzling to me. I don't know why, but it always hits me. (laughs) No, I agree. So they spoke with the woman 
who was next door, the one whose door they had originally knocked on. Her name was Ashley. She'd been devastated to learn that something had happened to her friend. Now, based on the initial and cursory determination of the medical examiner at the scene, like I said before, uh, Corey's time of death was placed Wednesday night, the night before Thanksgiving. And just to remind you and the audience that this is the Friday after Thanksgiving, so the day after is when they're finding her body. And just a side note here, I know it seems odd that Thanksgiving had come and went and they didn't know that Corey was missing, but Corey's family had not planned to spend Thanksgiving with her because she was so busy with work and school, and she was planning on seeing them in December. So her family knew that they weren't going to spend it together, and this is the age before cell phones. Okay. So she did have some finals coming up that she was prepping for for the fall semester. So they weren't being intrusive. You know, they were letting her lead her life. She's 25 years old. Right. now that And, and that makes sense. That information makes uh, a clearer picture for us. Like it wasn't weird that she wasn't answering, you know, or, or uh, no one saw her. She was busy. Exactly. And it wasn't like she had family in Jacksonville that she was going to visit. So that's why there was no like alarm bells going off on Thanksgiving. But as you can imagine, it was heartbreaking for the family to learn that their daughter and sister had spent Thanksgiving Day, for lack of a better way to say it, decomposing in her bedroom. And they had no idea. Very sad. Um, That's going to be traumatizing and I'm sure haunts them every holiday. Okay. So, sorry, that was a deviation. But back to canvassing. The officer was having a discussion with Ashley, and knowing that the time of death had brought them back to Wednesday night, they asked Ashley, like, did you hear from Corey Wednesday night? And that kind of shocked her because she let them know that she had been with Corey on Wednesday night. Okay. She said, I I hadn't been there for a long time, but I went over to her apartment around 6.30 p.m. Corey had just made a pie. Because the following day was Thanksgiving. But Ashley said that the whole night, well, the whole time they had kind of been together, Corey was talking about how excited she was to go out that night because Thanksgiving Eve is like a big bar hopping night. And Corey was excited to spend the night with her girlfriend. So that was interesting news. And the detectives are going to eventually have that news brought to them. So this is interesting. Corey had gone out that night and returned to her home. So again, that led them to believe that there is also a strong possibility that maybe she had brought someone home with her if she was out at a bar. And this also could help them understand that maybe if she was intoxicated, that would also leave her a lot more vulnerable and have made the attack easier. Definitely. And, you know, at least with Ashley's uh, testimony so far, like we can get a better uh, picture of the timeline. So like Mm -hmm. now we know that, you know, 630, she was there, uh, you know, she was going to go out. We know that now. But also Ashley's the last known person to see her alive and also knew her plan. That's not true. Oh, no, it's not. Because she goes out to the bar. Oh, that's right. And then she sees people. Okay, fine, Mm -hmm. fine. You're right. You're right. My God, you're already accusing Ashley. No, 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 no. It wasn't. I wasn't being accusatory. I was just (laughs) trying to say like she is one now one of only a a few people that have seen her last night with her. Yes. 
the timeline is starting to unravel here, which is good. Yeah, definitely. Because timelines always help. But the officer found something else out from Ashley. And this is disturbing. Shortly after Corey had moved into the apartment building, she, meaning Ashley, had been approached by a neighbor from a nearby building who told her that she and Corey had to watch out and keep their windows and blinds closed because they had observed a man peering into their windows. Okay, prior obviously prior to the incident. Prior okay. to the incident. And this was something that really disturbed both her and Corey. Corey did express to her family that she'd felt and seen someone outside of her window on one other occasion. So the two women really made a point to make sure their windows were locked and that their blinds were always closed because someone was, I mean, I always feel like peeping Tom is the worst word for it because it seems so innocuous, but it's, it's devious behavior. It is. But, but now what that tells me now is if they were already on guard about, you know, the potentiality that there's somebody trying to look through their windows if all their windows and doors were locked, then that means that whoever did this didn't do it by climbing through a window or breaking in or something like that. It was more well, her, of her window. I don't know if her window above her sink in her kitchen was open or that the killer opened it to leave to leave. I can't imagine that they would do that, though. I would think that was the entry and exit point only because. Wouldn't it be easier to just leave through the front door? I mean, sure. a window above a sink is is kind of difficult to get to. It is difficult, but then but you can make the argument that going through that window or out regardless is a tough thing to do. Yeah. How is somebody going through a kitchen window without making noise and alerting somebody that uh, to, that they're sleeping? Like I mean, it, it's Unless it's at the back of the house. Maybe. And maybe. And like I said, I'm just kind of throwing things out here, you know, but I'm thinking a woman alone is going to make sure that all windows and doors are locked, especially after an episode of that and finding that out. Well, if you come home drunk. I mean, and that, yes. And the but... window by the sink is always the last one I, like, lock. And sometimes I'll notice, oh, my God, that window was unlocked overnight because I just think nobody's going to go through that window. I mean, I guess you're right. But after an episode like that, though, where you're being told that someone's actively True. doing that, I don't think that you would be as lax to let that window be open. Unless you come home drunk at one thirty a.m. and you're not even thinking about I, it. I guess what it comes down to is there's so many variables and it's still unfolding. And maybe she left the window open because the pie was cooling. I'm thinking very okay. What it was? Snow White. This is like a Disney movie now. Um, no, well, it's Florida. Oh my gosh, I know. It's probably so hot. Very hot. All right, so that's a lot of information. And there's two possibilities here. One, something happened on her night out. There's, And then there's the possibility of the peeping Tom turned violent. We know that happens. Remember the ether man? So in order to find out which scenario is more likely, the detective set up interviews with Corey's friends and coworkers. Meanwhile, her autopsy results came back from the medical examiner. And this is where the detectives found out that Corey had been stabbed over 100 times, which is very violent. The medical examiner also outlined that Corey had extensive self-defense stab wounds on her hands. She had fought hard. Because of the posing of the body and other contextual clues, 
the detectives were surprised to learn that there was no physical evidence of a rape. None at all. None at all. Hmm. But in the over six years that we have had the pleasure of doing this podcast, I have never read a creepier autopsy report detail than what we are going to begin learning next. According to the medical examiner, there were impressions left in the body that had settled over Corey's body. According to the medical examiner, there were impressions left in the blood that had settled over Corey's body. They were swipe marks, meaning the killer, after the frenzied attack was over, stayed and moved his fingertips around her body in a caressing fashion. That is so weird and creepy. You're right. It is creepy. Yeah. In addition to that, some wounds were delivered post-mortem as he had been caressing her. He carved into her body. So he was, he or she was like playing around afterwards. Yeah. So at first the detectives were thinking that although this is highly disturbing, one, it reveals a lot about the motivation of the crime. Two, there might be latent fingerprints. But on that second point, there was no luck. The medical examiner told them that the finger smears were smooth with no ridges. The killer had been wearing gloves. That's so strange. Hmm? What are we dealing with here? Somebody very disturbed and sadistic. I also think that the 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 what you're describing with the fingertips, I almost feel like whoever did this must have been obsessing over her. That's the feeling yeah. that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. Like, like, fantasi- now like I fantasizing. Have you. Yes. Like there's a fascination with her and after what he after he killed her, that's what he was enjoying. It was everything after the kill, I think. Yeah. Which is even scarier. So disturbing. Yeah. So now the detectives were left with some thoughts post-crime scene analysis and autopsy report. One, the fact that he wore gloves meant that there was premeditation. Based on their experience, the detectives surmised that maybe their killer had wanted to or attempted to sexually assault Corey. But because she had been fighting so hard, that made him lose the fantasy or made him panic, which was what they believed the result of that was the large stab wounds in the neck because he was trying to subdue her. Could we make the argument too? I mean, I'm not an expert, but I just I just want to throw it out there. Could it be the opposite? Could we be dealing with someone that has the inability to... Yes, like, I understand what you're saying. ...take care of business, and then that's what the whole... 100 stab wounds is that is so that is the next sentences that i wrote okay sorry i don't yeah i don't i don't know exactly the right verbiage here but yeah like because he can't do the thing down below Mm -hmm. that's what he does instead like is that a possibility it is a 100 percent a possibility all right because good job john thank you i'm trying I mean, 165 plus episodes. I mean, I yeah, you're getting some should, stuff done. Should be able to have some, surmise a little you've bit. Got a, you got some mileage on yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> so, what they're thinking is that maybe because to subdue her, 
he had to stab her in the neck that caused her death sooner than expected. And because of that, he could not perform the violent sexual act, which then led to the excessive stab wounds, either because of frustration or because underperformance. There have been many criminal psychologists that say sometimes the perpetrators substitute rape with excessive stabbing because it's still it's simulated penetration. Yes, and that would explain the fury of these uh, of these wounds. Correct. And just for the record, I do not like that I had to say that sentence. I know. Yeah. In addition to that, the fact that he had carved into Corey and he'd also killed her the night before Thanksgiving was not lost on the detectives. Yeah. They knew they were dealing with a sadist. Also, a control killer. When he lost control, he got it back through murder. And then he relished in the aftermath of the murder and being with Corey. Now, they still believe that the intention was rape and not the carving and playing with the body. They don't believe he was a product killer. They believe that, like you said, this person was then relishing his time with her. And there was a type of obsession. Right. And now there's an extension to that because now I think after learning this, I think police should really, I know this is going to sound crazy and maybe it is a stretch. So it's okay if you call me out for this. But if we go to her extended work family and figure out if anyone approached her um, like to be with her or whatever, or like go on a date or whatever. And then she was able to like tell them like, no, I don't want anything to do with you. And to see if anybody sticks out from when she was at work. John, you're getting good, buddy. <laughs> we'll get there. Okay, okay. We'll get there. So the fact that this killer also spent so much time with Corey is going to make the detectives feel like this killer had to have been familiar with Corey or at least her schedule. Okay. But there was one more detail that I have for you because we all need to hear something good here. Right. Yes. We need a break. Definitely. And so do the detectives in this case. Although this crime had been premeditated, in his plans for murder, the killer had not been careful enough. Corey had been able to exact her revenge and play a hand, literally, in catching her killer. Inside of Corey's fists, stuck in the blood that covered her hands, were the hairs of her attacker. Really? Yes. The hairs were sent out for DNA testing, along with blood from the crime scene. Hopefully, in his frenzied stabbing, the killer had also cut himself and contributed to the blood at the scene. So, they had some hairs. She'd managed to grab them. And that's pretty good now, because we're talking 1998. We might be able to do something with that. Oh, we can. Good. So in order to get more clues as to who could have been capable of this, the detective spoke to Corey's friends and co-workers in Jacksonville. Females are more often than not killed by someone they know. According to a study held in December of 2022 by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 75% of women are killed by someone that they're close to. That's crazy. Yeah, and wild and sad. But hey, John. Yes. You are more likely to be killed by a stranger than I am. 
What's the percentage on that? You're 21% males and females 12%. Wow. So, I mean, I hope it doesn't happen. No. But I just like my, I like the, I like the chances I got, you know? <laughs> I see what you're saying. <laughs> so, because women are most likely to be killed by someone they know, the detectives want to start off with this question. Was Corey dating anyone? And they find out that she had been. Corey had recently started dating a man named Dave. They'd only been dating for about a month before her murder took place. According to her friends and co-workers, she was a bit giddy about it. The way you always are in the beginning of a relationship. Excited, um, butterflies, all that good stuff. So detectives most definitely put this Dave on the list for people that they wanted to talk to. But the detectives jump to Dave would prove fruitless. He had a verifiable alibi. It's easy when your crime took place around Thanksgiving because people's alibis are either going to be good or obvious. That's true. Dave had been at his father's for Thanksgiving in Pensacola. And there had been many witnesses able to verify that he had been there for multiple days. And for those of us not familiar with Florida geography, Pensacola is about a five-hour drive from Jacksonville. So it would have been physically impossible for Dave to have killed Corey. I mean, at least we could rule that out. Yes, and it's good to be able to rule something out. Since the venture into Dave had been a dead end, the detectives decided to circle back to one of Corey's friends, one that they had initially spoken to. According to Corey's co-workers, they had seen her out that night with another one of her friends. And she was out with the friend that she really spent most of her time with. Her name was Tiffany. Now, the detectives had spoken with Tiffany before, but at the time, their main focus was kind of talking to Corey's friends about her new boyfriend. And now they want to talk to Tiffany about what happened Thanksgiving Eve when the two women went out on the town. According to Tiffany, she and Corey had planned to go out because they knew it was going to be a big bar night. They had met up later in the night and arrived at a bar called The Ritz around 11.30 p.m. The two women arrived separately. At this bar, they ran into some people they knew, including Corey's co-workers. They spent about an hour and a half there when something happened to them. Tiffany mentioned this encounter because the detectives asked her if she remembered anything unusual about the night. And she said that Corey had had an interaction with someone they knew from around the Jacksonville area named Scott. The two of them, it was silly. They had physically bumped into each other. And instead of I'm sorry's being exchanged, Scott was a bit aggressive about the mistake and the two had words back and forth. Tiffany claimed that the rest of the night went on without incident. That night, um, they had not been out with Corey's current new boyfriend, Dave, because he was already at his father's house in Pensacola. Okay. Which is why he'd been excluded from the suspect list. The two women left the bar around closing time at 1.30 a.m. Oh my God, that makes me so tired. <laughs> Just thinking about that. Oh my god! No. Like we're we get a starting the night at eleven thirty. I mean, kidding me? I mean, I mean, we we're used sleeping. to do that. 
Once upon a time. Once upon a time. 12 years ago. There are times now where I say to you, come on, like we can go to a 930 movie. And you're like, no. No, I don't. Right. I'll and I'm do like, a 930 movie while I'm falling asleep on the couch. <laughs> I'm like, come on, babe. I know. I'm a loser. So the women had arrived separately, as I said earlier. And while they were leaving, Tiffany said the last time that she saw Corey was when Corey was walking to her own car in the parking lot. When asked if she heard from Corey after seeing her leave, like if they called each other to see if they got home okay, Tiffany said yes, that she did actually call Corey later that night to ask her something. But she couldn't remember what she had to ask her. But she said they spoke briefly on the phone and it sounded to her as if Corey had been asleep when she called. So she knew she was already home because she called the landline and that Corey was asleep. So this is going to really help detectives out because they understand that Corey went home alone. So most likely the intruder did get in through the window in the kitchen. Okay. And she was maybe more intoxicated than she should have been driving home, but she wasn't wasted. And she, if Tiffany is telling the truth, was attacked while she was sleeping it makes sense now yeah that part of it makes absolute sense but then something kind of throws detectives off tiffany gave the detectives an estimate on what time she had called Corey, but the time that she said she called Corey was odd to the detectives because that's when the medical examiner said she would have already been dead i mean that's a weird inconsistency but is it possible that maybe the medical examiner's off maybe a little bit maybe and maybe tiffany's off too and she's probably off as well she was drinking as well well it might just be a little odd detail but without anyone else as a possibility kind of landed tiffany on the suspect list i don't think there's a world where it doesn't because this is somebody that was with her that night i agree last person to see her alive right Corey was a beautiful, vivacious woman who drew a lot of attention. And the detectives were thinking, okay, maybe there was some sort of jealousy or issue between the two women that hadn't been resolved or a disagreement happened that night. But in order to clear Tiffany or accuse her, they would really need to nail down when that phone call had taken place. So they subpoena Tiffany's phone records to find that out. Okay. That's good. While they are waiting for the phone records to come in, the detectives received the results that they were waiting for from the lab. They had sent in the hair samples that had been found in Corey's hand, as well as blood from the windowsill, and they had actually found drips in the sink, which was right underneath the window that had been opened. The blood at the scene tested positive for Corey's DNA and one other sample of DNA from an unknown contributor. However, the contributor of the hair found in Corey's hand was a match for the blood. So that meant that Corey's killer had cut himself in the commission of the crime, and the hair that she pulled was also from the killer. Like that DNA match. Right. It's still unknown, but at least they know it's from the same person. I know it's going to sound so stupid, and maybe you can educate me, because I know... I feel like I'm going to get so much crap for this. Is there a way to tell 
by a hair follicle if it's male or female. Like I, I don't know. Like I know that might sound so stupid, but I'm just trying to make. I don't know. I'm just trying to understand. Okay, John is not stupid for asking that question because I didn't know the answer. So we paused the podcast and Googled it. Okay. And this is from the FBI. A person's gender. There's no characteristics that tell us whether hair is from a man or woman. But sometimes an educated guess can be made based on the condition of the hair. Okay, like whether or not it was long. Hairspray. Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. Whether like dove soap is used, like dudes just wash their hair with whatever. <laughs> no, I understand. I so, I just wanted to know because I've never an, asked no, that, that question before. No, that was a good question. Yeah. There's no such thing as a stupid question coming from a teacher. I like that. Thank you. You're that welcome. makes me feel better You're about welcome. that question. No, we have to feel comfortable <laughs> asking questions. Yes, yes. Okay. So they have a win here. They have DNA. So when they start getting suspects... They have something to compare it to. And in this case, it's really good because it's 1998 and DNA evidence is not new, but it's you still would need a lot of it to test. And 16 hairs were pulled. So that really does help them that they have a lot of stuff to test against. So when they have a suspect, they can ask for a DNA sample and they'll be able to rule that person out. Yeah, it's great. I love that. I love when we're able to have suspects, rule them out, move on. I'm sure the detectives love it, too. <laughs> I'm sure. The first person they tested the DNA against was the man at the bar that Tiffany said Corey had had a run-in with that night, the man named Scott. Um, this was not a match, so Scott had not committed the murder. This led them back to Tiffany And luckily, around that time, her phone records also came in. And it turned out, just as they suspected, Tiffany had been lying to them. I wonder why. According to her phone records, the phone she said she'd used to call Corey with, she had not called Corey that night. So she just lied about that whole entire thing? Yes. So they bring her in for questioning under the guise of wanting to know more information about what the women had done that night. When Tiffany came in, they spoke to her about the case in general. And what alarmed them was the details of the crime and the crime scene that Tiffany seemed to know. And this definitely is going to pique their interest because the police had chosen to, because you know how gruesome the details were, keep a lot of the details of Corey's death a secret. And Tiffany seemed to know them. How? (laughs) Unless you were there. Right. So they begin to question her harder about Corey and their relationship. And then they brought up the fact that, you know, she never actually called Corey that night. Once it was obvious that she was being considered a suspect, Tiffany completely clammed up and decided that it wasn't in her best interest to speak any further with the police. Because they were unable to question Tiffany further And they didn't want to get caught down a rabbit hole of only suspecting one person. The detectives decided to re-interview Corey's co-workers. They were all tight. They worked together. They played together. They knew about each other's lives. And they seemingly looked out for one another. So they thought that the co-workers would really want to help them, like be allies with them, in determining who did that. 
And in talking to the coworkers, they were able to get their next lead. Some of Corey's coworkers said that there was a dishwasher that worked with them. Okay. That had a crush on Corey. Ah, okay. See, you called this like so early. <laughs> uh, and um, this dishwasher had been making some really disturbing comments. Uh, he had been making them before Corey's murder and definitely after her murder. Okay. The employee of the restaurant was brought in for questioning. And right away, the detectives knew what his coworkers meant when they said he was weird. He was weird. He did not try to hide the fact that he was obsessive about Corey. And that's a characteristic that you said you think the killer has. Yeah. There was a type of obsession. Definitely. And he was saying he was really upset about the fact that he wasn't the kind of guy that she would have dated. When asked about the disturbing comments he had made about Corey, he said that he had told his coworkers about strange dreams and visions that he'd been having. Okay. Don't tell people about your visions. Ah, don't do it, man. Never. Don't do it. The dreams and visions went on to describe a very graphic, violent, and uh, sexual crimes against Corey. Oh, that's healthy. Yeah. Yeah. The actions replicated some of the horrific things that had actually been done to her. Yeah. That's, that is a massive red flag. Yes. This is massive. This guy is a red flag. <laughs> the whole, yeah, you know what? He actually uh, is a red flag. A walking red flag. <laughs> Things that the police chose not to release to the press. Smart. So, and this guy's saying he's having visions of this happening. There was one problem, though. The hair of the dishwasher did not match the hair that had been found at the scene. I mean, that's bad. Because this whole the he he embodies the red flag, okay. But mm-hmm. if if the DNA evidence isn't matching up, that's an issue. Unless unless there was more than one person there, right? Like, what are the odds of that? That someone is that obsessive over someone having these quote unquote visions, but yet the DNA evidence just doesn't match up? Yeah, could we be dealing with two people? We'll get into it. I don't want to reveal too much. No, 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 don't. It's coming up shortly. Yeah, I I just think it's odd. I think that the Jacksonville Police Department is really happy that they have this man's DNA on file. Because like you said, this interview was a red flag. Yeah. So keep those fingerprints, guys. (laughs) So that left detectives with a lot of questions in the case. They still had no idea who had killed Corey. The only kind of suspect they had was Tiffany. But even that was on shaky grounds because they couldn't prove she did anything and she'd really only lied about a phone conversation. And when it came to the information that Tiffany knew, they were feeling like either she knows it because she told someone to do it because it hadn't been her because her hair was tested as well and it wasn't or they had a leak in their department. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, that would be really bad. And that would also explain the dishwasher knowing details of the crime. If there's a leak, that would be terrible for investigators. Yes. So months of no new information regarding the case of Corey Parker went by, and those months turned into a whole year. 
Tiffany was taken off the list of suspects because they believed that she had not been involved because of her responses. They just thought that she really was upset about the death of her friend and her feelings were genuine. She'd called a lot of people that night and she'd been drunk. So they were thinking maybe she had mistakenly thought she had called Corey, but she had called a different friend. They believed the person who did this to Corey had rage and they just didn't believe that was Tiffany. It also came out later that Tiffany had gotten all of the information from a friend of hers that was an EMT that night. Okay. So that's where the leak kind of came from. Yeah. Well, luckily, it's not a detective, that. yeah. but that's how she knew the information. And that kind of explains a lot. It does. In order to get the case back into the public's eye, the detectives and Corey's family worked to hang posters all over Jacksonville with the promise of a $20,000 reward for any information that led to an arrest. As the posters circulated, the residents of Jacksonville talked about the murders, how sad and scary it had been, and how they couldn't believe that a whole year had passed since it happened, because it felt like it just happened yesterday, and that they were scared that the person who did this hadn't been caught. And it was that exact conversation that was being had between a group of co-workers from a barbecue restaurant. That would break the case. As they were talking about the horrible crime, someone brought up another one of their co-workers, a boy named Robert. They recalled that Robert, who had been 17 at the time of the murder, had been acting strangely after the murder took place. They shared experiences about just how weird he'd been acting. They said that he was very emotional. Some had seen him crying and others had seen him uncontrollably shaking. They all agreed that he had not been himself. And then someone brought up a really good point. Hey, didn't he live close to the woman that was murdered? And then another one of them mentioned the fact that Robert had told him that he had a crush on a woman that lived near him, and that he would sometimes watch her through her window. And that's who they might have saw the night be, or the night pr- or whatever it was prior to the the murder. When the neighbor saw someone yes. looking into their windows. Now I'm I'm curious now exactly what the proximity is and how close he actually was. Well, then someone else in the group said yes. He told me that he actually did it a lot. That he looked in the windows all the time. And he would never forget that Robert said something to him that really kind of creeped him out. He said, girls don't like me all that much, so I watch. Well, you know what? The effort that you're putting into watching, maybe if you just like have some courage and brush up on some social skills, you'll be good to go. I think I think this is beyond social skills. Uh, I mean, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying. That's positive That's, of you. You know what? This is anti-getting a girl to like you you're you're actually in the negative now yeah and i'm not trying to make that much of a joke about it but seriously this is weird dude yeah it's weird well it's like how do you respond when a coworker says that to you you're like you just oh, go okay. ah, yeah cool yeah yeah and you walk away because <laughs> there's literally nothing that you could say because you no. don't want to be next yes the coworkers were slowly piecing together the fact that they may know who had killed Corey parker And it was taking them talking about their shared experiences to figure it all out, which is so good when we have these 
times and cases where we get interest back in a case. And sometimes it does just take people talking about it again to get these leads that do lead to something successful. At first, they really didn't want to think that it was true at the time because Robert was only 17. And that was really the one thing they kept saying, like, he was 17. Like, would he really have done that? But eventually, you know, it they were leaning more towards something weird happened with him. So they chose to go to the police with their information. I mean, that's great that they decided to do that. Yeah. Because, listen, it could be it could be a, a good lead. Right. It could be nothing or nothing. But if it's something that's that's good. When the detectives received the tip, they were excited about this because it did seem like a viable lead. If, in fact, this person lived close to Corey, an officer would have questioned him while canvassing the area. So they went back and looked at the records. And there he was. Robert Denny. The co-workers had been right. Denny did live close to Corey. 31 feet away, to be exact. Don't tell me it's in the same complex, in the same building. At the time... He reported that he was living with an adult male roommate and that his parents were living in a separate state. We'll get to his family situation in a little bit. In the report, the officer said that he noticed nothing off or suspicious about anyone in the apartment. So if this kid did it, he was able to play it off. Which is scary in itself. At 17. Yeah. According to records, when the Jacksonville police tried to look up where Robert Denny was currently living, they found that he had left the area months previously. However, his sister still lived in Jacksonville. When they contacted her, she said she was up for being interviewed. What she had to tell them, they would have never been prepared for. All right, I'm going to buckle up now because this is getting good. good. Okay. She said that her brother was troubled and trouble. That when he lived with her, she was uncomfortable. That she had wanted to help him because he was her brother. She said that her and her husband would call him the night creeper because he would be out at all hours of the night. Sometimes he wouldn't come home until 5 a.m. And they didn't know what he was doing. All they knew was that he would sleep the whole next day. But she realized what he had been doing one night when she herself caught him looking into her bedroom window. Get out of here. His sister. So he's just like some weird deviant, this guy. Yes. And it all clicked for her. He was out watching women. Yeah. But hold on. Lady, if you know this, you caught, you pretty much caught this kid in the act. I know he's your brother, but that's a big deal. And if you live in town... Probably should tell them. Tell somebody. Well, this is what she caught him doing was before. Okay. And then she kind of doesn't speak to him. And then so she didn't know that he was living with this roommate basically next door, being neighbors with the woman who was murdered. And there was nothing out in the news about there being a peeping Tom, just that this woman had been murdered. I just think that's very odd. Well, we're, uh, we'll get there. We'll okay. get there. All right. I think the sister has motivations as to why maybe she didn't call police. Gotcha. So she said that that was obviously the last straw. She had a feeling where this behavior was headed because of her other brother. 
so she kicked him out. She stopped there and looked at the detectives, and she asked them, You know about my other brother, right? Not often on the receiving end of questions, the detectives paused. No, they said. What about your other brother? The woman, and I won't say her name for her own privacy, said my other brother, Patrick Denny, he's in prison for murder. The woman explained to the detectives that her brother Patrick had raped and murdered a woman when he had just been 15 years old when they were living in Texas. That's crazy. So I'm going to read for you an article from the El Paso Times from October 6, 1990. This article was written by Jim Conley. A 15-year-old El Paso high school student, an ex-paper boy, for the newspaper that he's writing for, by the way, so they try to distance themselves as much as possible, <laughs> Okay. accused in the brutal stabbing of one of his former newspaper customers. Imagine, hey guys, reading this newspaper, your newspaper boy killed one of you. Yeah. Oh my God. Faces murder trial as an adult with the possibility of the death penalty. Patrick Denny of the 2800 block of Yarborough is charged with the capital murder in the death of Teresa Catherine Latimer, 27, of the 3100 block of Isle Marino. Latimer was stabbed nearly 100 times. Wait. With a pocket knife. Wait, 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 wait. This is bizarre because this is the same way that our poor victim died as well. Right. And that's what I was talking about with the sister. This means two things. One, she should have known because the crimes were so unbelievably similar. Yes. Right? Yes. So at the time, this kid's 15, the victim's 27. When we're talking about Corey Parker, Robert was 17 and she was 25 very similar in ages as well yes and stabbed over a hundred times so either she didn't say anything because she's scared because she knows her brothers are dangerous or and most likely it's just i mean there's definitely has to be environmental factors on top of genetic factors that would lead to this so we don't know what their home life was like but Maybe because of past trauma, she didn't say anything or because she was scared. No, listen, I, and I know those are all, all possibilities. So, I mean. But isn't that the is same weird. thing? I'm wondering, did he, is he trying to like almost recreate it? Well, maybe. Okay. But before, let's first, let's finish the article. Okay. Sorry. I'm getting excited. Denny, meaning Patrick Denny, the brother was certified Thursday to stand trial as an adult rather than a juvenile. Latimer had been a newspaper customer of Denny, an Eastwood High School student and former El Paso Times newspaper carrier, they put that in there, who quit his paper route about two weeks before the murder. They really want to make sure that their customers know that. Cut all ties. Yes. Assistant County Attorney... Frank Lynch said investigators believe Denny entered Latimer's home to commit rape, although an autopsy did not indicate she had been sexually assaulted. This is the same. The brother is recreating the crime of his brother. Correct. That's so strange. I, I wonder why. 
The charge was elevated to capital murder because the murder occurred in the course of the alleged sexual assault. Murders committed in the course of certain other felony crimes, including sexual assault, can be punished by the death penalty. District Judge Enrique Pina ordered Denny transferred Thursday from juvenile detention custody to the El Paso County Jail, where he remained Friday night. No bail had been set. Pena made his ruling after Dr. David Briones, a psychiatrist, and Gloria Chris, a psychologist, testified that Denny is able to understand the legal proceedings against him and capable of assisting in his own defense. The judge said he believed Denny should not be allowed back on the streets. Denny, who lived with his parents, was arrested September 6th, nine days after Latimer's friend found her nude body in her home. Wow. Mm-hmm. Denny's arrest came, police said, after the discovery of police records showing that he called the police himself and reported that he had been robbed and while he was being robbed, his thumb was cut and they somehow were able to connect it. A second blood type was found at the murder scene and it was able to be connected to Patrick Denny. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Like that this is being recreated what happened eight years prior to right. like it, this is insane. It's wild. To a T, it's the same exact crime. It is. And of, just so we have like some finality in that case, Patrick Denny was eventually given a life sentence. Okay. So these similarities are wild. Robert's sister said that Robert had been eight at the time that his brother had murdered that woman. And in that woman, she means Teresa Latimer. The detectives asked the woman if she had been in recent contact with her brother, and she said she did not like to speak with him, but that they had exchanged a few emails. She voluntarily did everything she could to help the police, and eventually, using an IP address, they were able to track Robert Denny to a residence in Easton, Maryland. The detectives were thinking that there was a few things going on here involving the psychology of their killer. He was either trying to emulate his older brother or he was trying to prove he could do the same thing but better to get away with it. Is he exacting revenge for his family okay. or is he does he have a sick fantasy like of him wanting to be like his brother or does he not like his brother and he's trying to show I'm smarter than you? Can I throw one more out there? Okay. That I don't know why this would make sense, but <laughs> just let me say it. A John theory. A John theory. What if he's doing it to show that it happened, the same crime that they found his brother guilty of? Well, then if he's in prison for that crime, then how could it have happened again? Oh, um, interesting. While he's in prison. So is he doing it to try to say, like, my brother's innocent. He shouldn't be in prison. Do you get what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. Like, this like crime can be committed. Killer. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's you know the same crime happened again. How could my brother be in jail for that? If you know, it's it very interesting. Again? But I yeah. do feel like in this case, the one difference in the out the detail that's like an outlier here is that I do do feel like he did develop an obsession with Corey Parker. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to like. So I think that like that the away. psychology is that he's also yeah equally disturbed. But the fact that the two brothers committed the same exact crime is just insane. Yeah, I think my theory might not make sense just because I think it's, no, it's a it's it's a possibility. Why wouldn't I it? Yes, I mean, I guess, but maybe I'm giving this person too much credit. You know, right? Well, he definitely is devious and. I don't think it's that he wanted to help his brother. I think it's one of the first two only because it doesn't seem like he has – he doesn't have this like loving relationship with his brother where he would try to help him out. Right. I, I think see. that yeah. I think he's incapable of feeling like that, those kind of emotions. So now they have a feeling that Robert Denny is their guy, right? I mean how could he not be? So the detectives wanted to get him, but they knew that it wouldn't be easy. They traveled to Maryland to talk to him, and they didn't want to leave Maryland without Robert Denny's DNA because they really knew that that would be the end-all, be-all of whether or not he was the person that was in the room with her that night. So they choose to plan a like a ruse to get his DNA. They know that he's not just going to give it to them. So they get the strongest hair that they have from the sample they collected. There was one strand in particular that still had the bulb attached. So they brought it with them so it could be compared to the sample that they were eventually going to collect from Denny. The detectives approached him at his home and asked him if he would come down to the station regarding an event that had happened in his neighborhood. He chose to go with them. They told him that a man had been badly injured during an assault and they were wondering if he would tell them, you know, where he was the night that it happened. And they asked if he would show them his hands. So Robert Denny had not been involved in this assault against this man. So he seemed calm and relaxed during the interview, having no problem explaining his alibi, showing his hands because there was no injuries. However, When the detectives asked him if he'd be willing to provide them with a DNA sample, his whole demeanor changes. Of course. He said, I've watched all of those TV shows and from them he learned the police can plant evidence. So he didn't want to give his DNA. And I think his response actually says a lot where he's talking about a a distrust of the police. So that actually kind of indicates like kind of like what you said of like, You know, maybe he's trying to prove that the police were wrong in the case against his brother or something. Yeah. So they tried all of their tricks. They told him it was fine, but they gave him a bottle of water. He never took it. At one point during the interview, they took him out for a smoke break, but he put the cigarette butt out on his shoe and then he placed it behind his ear. He was being very careful. They tried one last thing, and this is like... Too painfully obvious, I think. They told him that they just needed a written statement and that he'd be good to go. So he wrote the statements and they said it's protocol for the witness or the interviewee to seal the envelope. So they gave him envelopes to put the signed papers in. And this got him mad because it was the kind of like envelope you'd have to lick. And he said to the detectives, you know, this is the third time you've tried to get me to put my lips on something and collect my DNA. He gave them the envelopes back and told them to seal up the papers themselves. And after that, he elected to leave the interview. (laughs) I mean, this is crazy. So after he left, the detectives were thinking like, 
what the heck? How is this 19-year-old kid not falling for things that usual 19-year-old kids would fall for? There was a criminal sophistication there, and it really convinced them that Denny was their man. Because of this, detectives were adamant that they would not leave Maryland without getting a sample of DNA. The detectives began to tail him, but Denny caught on quite quickly that he was being watched. One place they followed him was to his job sites. They watched as about every 45 minutes he would go outside for a smoke break, and he worked kind of like on a construction site. But same as he did at the station, he would always take his cigarette butts with him. It was going to be hard, and the detectives were disheartened until one particular smoke break. One of the detectives witnessed Denny spit on the ground, and it was a lot. But they were excited. As soon as he walked back inside, they rushed to the location where he had spit. And luckily, he had spit in a puddle, which preserved the like spit was sitting on top of the water. So it was so easy to collect. Oh, wow. That's yeah. wow. That's lucky for them. Yeah, just it had just rained. So I know it's gross. So I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a I'm sorry if that grossed you out. The beginning of the podcast must have been rough. (laughs) So the detectives were able to get seven swabs from the one spit. Wow. The samples and the hair were driven personally by the detectives to the nearby FBI lab. So they were, you know, because they were obviously close by. And with a job well done, the detectives headed back to Florida and wanted to wait for the results. The DNA came back as a match between Robert Denny and the blood and hair found at the scene. And remember, the hair was found clutched in Corey Parker's hands. And finally, after almost two years of no one answering for the crimes against Corey Parker, there was an arrest. While he was being arrested, Denny was yelling that he hadn't killed anyone and that they got it wrong. But that was something that a jury would have to decide. Luckily, the prosecution had physical evidence in their case. Because outside of that, there was just a lot of questions. He clearly copied his brother. But his motivations surrounding that were still a mystery. Had he been a peeping Tom for a while? What made him escalate? Was he trying to emulate his brother? Or was he trying to prove that he was more criminally sophisticated? Had he approached Corey that night after seeing her returning home late? Had she caught him peeping in the window? Had she denied him? He was very close-lipped about what happened, so we don't have a lot of answers about how he did it or why he did it. Um, But presumably he did go through the window because she was seemingly killed while she was sleeping. We also know that it had to have been premeditated because he had gloves. He had gloves and he definitely it listen, there's no way that this person just did it one time like looking at her through a window or something. He had to have been doing this multiple times. Yeah, he and knew her And that's when schedule. he decided to plan on that's the one I'm going to uh kill. Well, they were actually thinking that there's a potentiality that he snuck through her window while she was out and he had been waiting for her to come home. Well, that's scary. 
Uh, but what I'm saying is I think that like at some point after looking at multiple women's windows or whatever, he he chose her. Right. He did because he was uh, he had looked into Ashley's window as well. Right. So. So the trial itself lasted three weeks and the jury found that the evidence presented at trial was true and overwhelming. It took them only 45 minutes to deliberate. He was guilty. Robert Denny was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The same sentence his brother received. Wow. Well, good. Because I, now I, I, mean, I can't believe the two of them did the same thing. Yeah, but the thing is, though, is like I can't get on board with the whole like uh, he was trying to like be more sophisticated than his brother because that doesn't make sense either because he didn't do anything extra than his brother. He didn't go to any other kind of length to try to hide it. Right. So I don't think it's a matter of I'm going to be more sophisticated than my brother. Well, he, I think if anything, it, his brother going away caused some trauma maybe for him and it somehow it manifested into this also like you said factors at home factors in genetics whatever i think all of it may, might have played a role in him maybe doing this but i don't know well i think if his brother yeah. was 15 yeah and his brother was caught because he called the police on himself basically by saying i got robbed look my finger got cut and then that so i think he was show- i mean it's Crazy that it manifests around the same time, very young. Yeah. That they committed these crimes as juveniles. I see. I mean, I, all right. I get what you're saying. Like, maybe he was like, well, the sophistication part is by not calling the police. On myself. <laughs> on myself. I mean, okay, maybe. And he plans it a little more with yeah. having the gloves on and he was doing it in a time of DNA. Maybe. So, I mean, it's a possibility. I think that what might have happened, my kind of theory without being a professional, is that when he was eight years old, his brother did that. And that became something that maybe excited him. I see. And then he wanted to recreate it because he remembered hearing about it and being excited by it. Right. And then he wanted to just yeah live it out himself. Right. I think what's interesting is that they both, the stabbing a hundred times just shows a frenzy, an anger, a rage within them. But the fact that both of them had tried the attempted sexual assault but then didn't is very interesting to me. And I think speaks to something deeper psychologically that we just don't know about because we don't have the information from their family. Yeah, I think the information uh, like to see how they, uh, how they grew up and what was taking place would explain a lot more. Uh, even though, regardless, they're both killers, cold blood killers, and uh, what took place here is undescribable and just so sad to these two families that this happened to. But um, it's just, I can't believe it was recreated years later. And that both those women lost their lives to a family that definitely had some interesting genetics, but must have had a really bad situational environment for those kids i think to have committed those murders yeah i'm on board with that yeah okay so before we leave we just want to say thank you to our new patreon supporters we didn't say thank you when we did the story listener stories episode so we got a really amazing list of people for you today kazra shawverdi karina murphy 
Colleen Harrigan Meissenholder, Mary McKenna, Walika, Rachel Depsey Swords, Allie Rodriguez Goodman, Susanna Perdner, Mark Curdo, Cable Wall, Cash, Courtney Klesvati, Donna, Aaron Harbin, Lindsay Jackson, Joanna, Bethany Hardiman, Abby Vander, Bridget Farndale, Amy Burks, Allison Tylander, Amanda Spates, Chloe McKnight, Joe Kelly, Nicole Monger, Kate Stokes, Anna Hussey, Lynn Ernst, Yunta Paleka, Tyler, Kelly Garvey Honer, Faray Mbale, Golden Murphy, Kimmy, Ashley Labita, Terry Smith, Sarah Lanier, John Roth, Heather Trapp, A. Des, Libby, Kelly Koshmeter, Kristen, McDuncan Foster, Shane Steele, Jillian Dodonna, Nova Coker, Queen V upped her pledge, Zara Shawnee, Rachel Sue, Shannon Sedler, Ivana Carlin, Nina Bean upped her pledge, Emily and Lita. Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon. We hope you're enjoying the extra episodes. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.